am challenged. I'm challenged, and hopefully, uh, hopefully, it challenges you. And hopefully, uh, we never really reach the place where we have this ultimate comfort in. Well, I, I understand it all because uh, hopefully we're always challenged. But one of the difficult things that, and, and maybe Daniel can speak to this as well, is when we spend time studying the Word of God. Suddenly, we realize that we've been reading the Word of God through tradition more than we've been reading the Word of God for just what the Word of God says. And I always have to guard against that because we all came from some tradition, right? We all have some some view or concept of God, who God is, what God wants, how God works salvation, right? I mean, so we come with some kind of an idea it's allowing the Word of God to say what the Word of God is saying without uh, eisegeting the challenges to exegete. Okay, so <clears throat> let me define that for you. To exegete, to be an exegetical person, is to take out of the text what the text is saying. To eisegete is to put into the text something that something that may be my tradition or feeling that may not be there okay <clears throat> i'm not i don't mean to say that one is evil and one is righteous because <clears throat> they're they're just tools both are tools that are utilized in study but what we want to be challenged with as we especially right when we start to put together arguments and we start to put together uh, a, de- a defense of our faith and how we're going to challenge somebody else. That's got to be firm, doesn't it? And we, we, it's kind of indicative that we know what we believe and why we believe it. And we're able to stand on, on that concept. And understand that concept through the Word of God, which is our ultimate foundation, our, our ultimate authority. So, so one of the things that I want to challenge us in is the idea that we are careful of our glasses because it makes a difference. Not I'm not just talking about soteriology. It makes a difference in how we view God. It makes a difference in how we understand multiple doctrines. And as we move forward, eventually, somewhere down the line, we'll talk about eschatology. Does anybody have a view on eschatology? Eschatology is the study of end times. How is the end all get wrapped up? If you go to a bookstore, one of the biggest sections you're going to find is going to be on that concept. Uh, is there a rapture? Isn't there a rapture? Does Jesus come back for an earthly millennial reign? Or is it a heavenly millennial reign? Or is the millennial reign of Christ something that occurs, that the church begins, that Christ finishes, um, moving to a new heaven and a new earth? And... So there's a lot of views, possibilities. What's important when I study the idea of eschatology or end times is that I'm letting the Word say what it says. Now, I come from a tradition. I come from a, <clears throat> a hard tradition. Calvary Chapel is a hard... Um, what I mean, it's a, it, it's a hard line. In order to be Calvary Chapel, this is a point. If you're not this, you can't be a Calvary Chapel. So you've got to be premillennial you got to be pre-tribulational in your viewpoint of the rapture. <clears throat> that is something you have to hold to as a pastor. 
Because the Calvary Chapel Church is gets the name not from the people that go, but from the pastor that teaches. So if I was to abandon that view, if I was to abandon premillennialism and the pre-trib rapture, I, we still have a church, but Calvary Chapel would ask us not to call ourselves Calvary Chapel. Uh, their reasoning is, uh, you know, you can have a McDonald's as long as you do McDonald's burgers. But if you start doing burritos, you should probably call yourself Taco Bell. Uh, so it's you're not in accordance with the rest of it. It's not, it's not good or bad. It's just the way it is. Well, what's my point? My point is, <clears throat> there's a hard line. Now, that should not factor into my search of the truth and what does the Bible teach, right? Because <clears throat> our goal should be, what's the truth? Agreed? And so we've got to be careful. <clears throat> am I coming to a subject in the Scripture and am I wearing rose-colored glasses so that everything I look at and, and interpret is rose-colored? Does that make sense to everybody? Well, I really see it in eschatology, it really comes out. It's an easy way to see <coughs> where I have tradition glasses. I can look at scriptures and see the rapture that another guy would not ever see the rapture. Why do I see the rapture? That's my tradition. More so than it is exactly what the text is talking about. That's a challenge. We don't have to be afraid of it because <coughs> I wouldn't hold to the view if I didn't believe the view to be true. But if I believe the view to be true, I should find the foundation in Scripture. Does that make sense? That's the challenge when we come to the doctrine of salvation. The Bible has very clear things to say about salvation. <clears throat> so when we are putting together our view of salvation, how does salvation work? How did it happen how is somebody saved? There are certain things we're not going to find in the Bible. Anybody want to take a guess on what at least one of them is? What won't we find in our search for how God saves us? Well, the concept, <coughs> we're going to see that we're not saved by works. We're going to see that idea. I'm... I'm trying to set a ball up on a tee, but I'm not getting any takers. Um, let me give you it. What you're not going to find is a prayer to pray. Right? What's the Bible going to tell us? Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. The Bible's going to say, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord. But is it going to give us a prescribed prayer? So... When we put together the, the concept of salvation and how salvation works, <clears throat> our foundation needs to be Word of God. Does that sound fair? So there's a few places I wanted to... I, wanted, I'm, I think I'm going to do the scripture part at the end. I'm going to define some terms for us briefly. It's not even all the terms, but it's some of the terms. <clears throat> then we're going to look at some scriptures and then... Uh, hopefully that's going to lead to discussion and then the assignment for next week. So let's take a look at uh, some of the terms. If you can't write all these down, I'll make copies for next week. I just didn't get a chance to get the copies done for this week. So next week I can give you these copies that I'm going to talk about. And 
whatever I add into it for next week. So, however, I always think I learn more when I write it down. So it's up to you guys how you want to do it. But there's some terms that I wanted I wanted to discuss, and then we're going to jump into Romans. So, one, uh, effectual grace, or some people call it prevenient grace. You ever anybody ever heard that term before? Prevenient grace. <clears throat> Most of the time, we just hear grace. Um, there is some argument. Me and Jason were talking. Where did I lose Jason? He leave. Um, we're oh okay. We were discussing about um, um, you know if Scripture is the foundation. Where do you see prevenient grace? Where do you see where, prevenient? P r e v e n i e n t. And your computer is going to yell at you about it. P r e V E N I E N T. Okay, let me define prevenient. I don't know why they don't just use this word because it's much simpler. It means before salvation. Prevenient. Before salvation. Prevenient. Some people call it common grace. You guys heard that phrase before? Prevenient grace. Um, so here's what here's what is meant by the concept. And most of the time what you can find in the in the Bible is grace, grace. Okay? So the, here's the idea. God's grace is not only prevenient, but it's also efficacious or effectual in producing salvation in the elect. So this is effectual grace, prevenient grace. Common grace. The idea is that God's grace is not only before salvation, but it is also efficacious or effectual. Means it accomplishes what it's supposed to in producing salvation. This word is this part is important in the elect. Which is, yeah, but this statement is both. It's not necessarily out of one camp or the other. <clears throat> Some of the differences how those things take place, we'll, we'll get into that uh, pretty soon. So, that is, this grace accomplishes in the lives of believers the salvation God has foredetermined for them. And by which He accomplishes what He has purposed. God's grace. Isaiah 55 11, so my word shall go forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. It shall prosper in the thing for which I send it. <clears throat> um, being an all-knowing, sorry, an all-powerful, uh, God never attempts what He does not accomplish. So, um, these things that we're talking about are all from Geisler. Geisler, by the way, is not a cop. I guess that's my point. Um, <clears throat> so here's what he says. Philippians 1.6 Being confident of this very thing. He who has begun a good work will what? Does it ever say if God's begun a good work in you he will fail to complete it? No. So the word says if God's begun... He'll finish. Right? Uh, Philippians 2.13 For it is God 
who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So God is doing what God does. <coughs> That's the idea or the concept of effectual grace. We have the idea of sealing. You guys have heard that, that, that we are sealed. Um, Paul speaks of being sealed by the Holy Spirit as a salvific act that guarantees our ultimate salvation. The guarantee of our salvation is the seal of the Holy Spirit. It's what the Bible tells us. So, where does it say? Ephesians 1.14. Uh, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory? Speaking of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's in Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, it says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Romans 8, 9, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. <clears throat> if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So if you don't have the Holy Spirit, are you saved? No. That's the, the idea of being sealed in the Holy Spirit. Now, what does the Bible teach about that? How does that occur? Salvation. Uh, occurs in salvation. It's part of salvation. Right? Part of salvation is the Holy Spirit comes into the life of the believer. Right? We're born again. The Holy Spirit takes up residence. So... You can't be a saved person without the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Let's talk a little bit about the word salvation. Uh, the word salvation has roots in the Hebrew word yasa, <coughs> which means to be wide or roomy. It is a word in contrast to narrow or confined. So words like liberation, emancipation, preservation, protection, and security all grow out of the concept. It refers to delivering a person or a group of people from distress or danger, from a restricted condition, to, uh, in which they are unable to help themselves. That's what the Hebrew word intends. The Greek words for salvation are soteria or soterion. Thus, the doctrine of salvation is called soteriology. Soteria or soterion. The meaning is deliverance, preservation, or salvation. Salvation often <clears throat> is often used of physical deliverance. In other words, Paul's desire to be delivered or released from prison. Same concept. I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. So the idea of being physically saved from the danger he's currently in. Same kind of a concept. The Greek nouns, soteria and soterion, uh, also spiritually refer to a process uh, by which God, through the work of Christ, delivers sinners from the prison of sin. Paul declared, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God 
for salvation of everyone who believes. He later says, It is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth you confess and are saved. Romans 10.10. We're going to take a look at that. Peter announced, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. That's in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. So, salvation is a broad term. It encompasses the the four stages that we talked about. You begin with really three stages, but you, assuming you begin at condemnation, uh, which are saving you from the past penalty of sin, that's justification, from the present power of sin, that's sanctification, and from the future presence of sin, that's glorification. Next word we want to consider is the word redemption. Again, redemption is a broad term. can speak of, of many different things, not only spiritually being redeemed, but uh, physically as well. <clears throat> it is taken from the word apolotrosis, which means to redeem or ransom or deliver. It's used ten times in the New Testament. Once of physical deliverance, nine times of spiritual that's that word, apulatrosis. <clears throat> Another Greek word for redemption is lutron, uh, which is used both in Matthew and Mark, <clears throat> which means to ransom, to redeem, or to buy back. And its spiritual application pictures sinners being purchased from the marketplace of sin. Another term for redemption is anti-lutron, which means readoption price or ransom in 1 Timothy 2:6 Paul speaks of Christ who gave himself a ransom for all men gave himself a ransom for all men the testimony given in his proper time that's 1 Timothy 2:6 <clears throat> another word agorazo uh, which comes from the Greek word marketplace agora uh, carries a, the meaning of buying, purchasing, or paying a price for something. Agorazo is used 31 times, most often with a physical meaning rather than uh, spiritual. Um, the next word that we want to consider is mediation. Mediation. As Savior Christ is our mediator okay so the hebrew word yaha is employed once in the old testament anybody know where <clears throat> the concept of mediator in the old testament nope nope yeah where's that nope ish Ish. Ishmael? <laughs> <laughs> Is Ruth the mediator to the king? <laughs> no. Or you mean Esther? Or Esther, yeah. Sorry. <clears throat> Keep going. Where is it? It's only one time in the Old Testament. I hate them. There's one. If there's five right answers, I feel better. I, one is, one is rough, huh? <laughs> uh, <laughs> timeline. For I know who my Redeemer lives. 
Job. 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 Okay. Job. Wow. So Job 9.33. <coughs> Job 9.33 says, uh, If only there was someone to mediate between us. Why did you say ish? Well, ish, because Kinsman Redeemer was ish. It's, it's kind of close. Sorry, brothers. Ish man. What's he saying? Ish. Ish in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, ish means man. Maybe. Oh, sorry. Well, Kinsman Redeemer reminds me of Job. I don't know why. So, uh, if only there was someone to mediate between us to lay his hand upon us both. Remember, part of Job's lament. If there was someone who could make a case between me and God. That's the, the Old Testament area where the idea of mediation is, is laid out. It is more fully explained to us in the New Testament, right? And all over in the New Testament, uh, the Greek word for mediate is mesitas. It is used uh, six times in Galatians of Moses. It's used in Hebrews of Christ. 1 Timothy 2.5 it says, There is one God... And one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So uh, the concept is laid out for us. There are three aspects to the mediation of Christ. Three aspects to the mediation of Christ. He mediates as prophet. Anybody guess the next two? Priest and king. So he mediates as prophet, which means he represents God to men. He mediates as priest which means he represents man to God. And he mediates as king, which means he reigns over man for God. Those three ways, Jesus Christ is the mediator for us. So that concept of mediation is a part of salvation and what we're going to discuss. Next we have the idea of regeneration. Regeneration. Uh, the Greek word for regeneration is pelagonesia, uh, which means rebirth, spiritual renovation. Uh, it is used twice in the New Testament, Matthew 19.28, of a new world, the new world order when Messiah sets up his kingdom and there's a new world. That's uh, regeneration. And then it is used in Titus 3.5 of salvation. Listen. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So regeneration is the impartation of spiritual life by God to souls who were dead in trespasses and sin. Ephesians 2.1, right? We who were once dead in trespasses and sin, He made alive. Um, uh, and so we are made alive by God through faith in Jesus Christ uh, according to Ephesians 2.8 the source of regeneration is God the result of regeneration is sonship the means of regeneration is the Holy Spirit the duration of regeneration is eternal First John or John 1, 12 through 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, 
nor of the will of man, but of God. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, according to Galatians 3.26. And there are multiple texts that uh, continue to build on that idea. So as we kind of work our way through, this, by the way, is not an extensive list of all the terms that we're going to be discussing. Hopefully it's enough to get your mind starting to move uh, in that direction. It still lasts. Yeah. You're not being regenerated. You will regeneration will have been accomplished. So regeneration. Speaking of regeneration being eternal, is a way of saying so is your salvation. Has no end. Has no end. Once you're regenerated. Your new creation created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has foreordained that you should walk in. So, you know, it's an endless argument, right? The, the endless circular argument is one side says you can, you can lose your salvation, the other side says if you can, if you left, you never were of Him. And that's a biblical concept. Uh, I don't know that you will. Since God's eternal, uh, you will be learning eternally. Yeah. Yeah. <coughs> All right. So now let's take a look at Romans. Um. I gave you the scriptures, right? Condemnation, chapter 1 through chapter 320. Justification, did I give you this? Okay. Condemnation in Romans. When we really want to understand the principles of the righteousness of God and salvation, Romans is a primary source. It's not the only source, but it is a primary source. Speaks of man's guilt before God in chapters 1 through chapter 3, verse 20. Speaks of justification, the work of justification from 3.21 through chapter 5, verse 21. Uh, Speaks of sanctification in chapter 6, verse 1 through chapter 7, verse 25, which is basically all of chapter 6 and 7. And then glorification, chapter 8. Then Romans changes, uh, I don't know if it changes focus, but its focus becomes a little different in uh, 9, 10, and 11, and uh, going toward the end of, of the book of Romans. So, <coughs> so those are some areas. So what I'd like us to do in preparation of what we're going to do next week is read Romans 1 through 8 between now and next week. And then I want you to think about, and uh, and like I said, we're going to discuss some of it tonight, the concept of salvation in your mind and 
spend a little bit of time in the Word so that you can say, yes, these things are established in the Word. Here's what the Word teaches. So next week, everybody's got um, a concept that we're going to discuss and look at and see if it's defendable. Sound good? Does not have to be defended strictly from one through eight, right? No, no, no. Whole Bible. I just want you to look at one through eight as a kind of a the background to where we're where we go to. Yeah, you're gonna go to Ephesians, you got to. Ephesians two eight says, For we are saved by grace through faith is a gift of God, and not of works, lest any man would boast. We're going to go other places. But just as a like in preparation of building your canvas of the canvas of salvation, <clears throat> read Romans one through eight, and then it should give you a, kind of a outline, for lack of a better, that you kind of plug through, uh, just building your idea, and then and then we'll, we're going to discuss them. Some of them we're going to discuss now. We're going to go look at some specific scriptures. And, and bring up some, hopefully bring up some discussion on those scriptures as we look at it. So, so while we're here, let's uh, just flip over in Romans. We go to Romans 10, 9 and 10. It's definitely, probably going to be part of uh, anyone's overall idea of salvation. <clears throat> Romans 10, 9 and 10. So, <coughs> um, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. For whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Pretty good scripture dealing with salvation. Anybody have any particular observations that they would like to share? Romans 10, 9 through 13. You can back up earlier than that if you want. What's that? Whosoever. Whosoever is a good word. Whosoever is a good word. So it's important as we, as you guys kind of put together your system or idea of soteriology, build on it. Build on it, right? There's a whole movement called the whosoever's based on this scripture. Whosoever. So defining whoever is whoever. And and what the scripture has to say about that. Anybody else? Romans 10, 9, 10 and following. Any other observations? Is it always belief and confession together? In other places in the, in the word? Mm, no. Don't think so. <clears throat> not always. But that doesn't mean it's not. 
because one is a general statement and one is more specific. But what is meant by confession? If you confess the Lord Jesus, what's that mean? What did it mean in Paul's time? Put yourself in the writer, right? One of the first things we need to do in our observation is, is grapple with context. So what's the context? When Paul's writing to the church in Rome, what, what do they hear when they say, confess the Lord Jesus? Well, what in for sure? What was the what was the context in which they lived? Where when who did they have to confess? So they always had to confess Caesar as Lord. So what when Paul says you got to confess the Lord Jesus? Does he mean in the same way? Does he mean exclusively? He's also going to say, Paul, writing in the same time period, that no one can confess Jesus as Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And in that context, where uh, where he's talking about no one confess, no one can confess uh, that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, and no man in the Spirit calls Jesus accursed. Don't remove it from the context either. Same context, right? What was going on in their time? The idea that you had to take a pinch of incense and declare that Caesar was Lord. I got to declare Caesar's Lord. And, and Paul's saying, look, if anyone declares, if anyone stands up in that place and says, Jesus is Lord, he does that in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, and that's a, that's a, for them, that was a really strong statement, right? Well, I know we're, I'm not saying it doesn't have application to us. It does. But we, when we observe Scripture, we need to observe Scripture in context. Agreed? And so don't remove it, especially from historical context. There's other contexts too. But spend the time thinking all those things through. Remember, I don't know if you guys were here on Wednesday, I talked about <clears throat> living by the book. How many guys did living by the book? Howard, you did it with this. Daniel did it. And living by the book, one of the first lessons in living by the book, it basically it's a book on learning how to uh, um, interpret, apply, and observe things in the Word of God. So basically the idea is everything begins with observation. Okay? And they gave us a table, like this table right here. And they said, everybody stare at that table. For five minutes. And then at the end of five minutes, I want you to write down everything. We're going to... Now don't look at the table no more. Now write down everything that you saw. And in the exercise, we'd look, and I think, I got it. You know, in five seconds, I get it. I see everything that's there. And then on the, on the screen, what they did is, I looked at my list, and then you guys remember they run the list of everything that was on that table? And it was like, holy cow, I had like... Seven things on my paper. He had 150 items listed, and I'm that I didn't see. Why? Because I really wasn't taking careful observation, making careful observation. So when we come to scripture, we want to do that, 
right? We want to take the time, read it over. Because we hear familiar scriptures over and over again, right? And pretty soon we, we're sure we got it all. We've squeezed all the juice out of that verse. And he also said that one of the things was to watch Yeah, and we don't. That's right, and we miss and we miss things because we go too quick. Uh, I thought that Danielle has uh, uh, Jason's wife has a really good thing she does in English for just English stuff reading in general called close reading. But basically, close reading is the same idea that you slow down, really chew on it all, look for it. What's going on? Why does he say this? Why does he say that? What's, what's happening? Paint the picture so you can get as much, squeeze as much of the information that we have available for us in that scripture that we can squeeze out of that. Anybody else have anything else? Romans 10, 8 through 13. Alright, let's turn backwards. Go back to Romans 8. Here's another good one we know. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined <coughs> to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, moreover whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. Anybody know what they call that section of Scripture? Calvinism 101. <laughs> the golden chain of redemption. <clears throat> Links in the chain of redemption. I thought Calvinism 101 was in chapter 9. Chapter 9, but, that's what I was going to But it's definitely, up the, it's definitely up the same tree. So what do we observe? All. All? Yeah, it's in the other passage. For we know that all things work together. Okay. What was in the other passage? All what? That all who... Um, well, to go back to it. And I noticed that there was a couple of alls in chapter 10. Um, so let me go back to that. It said, uh, the scripture said, whoever believes in the Lord There's no distinction between Jew and Greek, but the same Lord over all is rich in all and call upon So who's the all? That's a question. It's all, all. It is, but what is it defined by? All what? Who believe? All, all with faith. Huh? All with faith. Yeah. So we got to look. All always means all, but all sometimes well, is defined by context. Who? All, all what? All mothers, all fathers, all people, 
all everyone. So it's definitely all who call. I have no problem with that. And then here when we see all between Jew or Greek. So that's that also is all kinds, isn't it? All kinds, whether Jew or Greek, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. All kinds. Huh? Say it again. But if they have to call on the name of the Lord. Yeah, that defines so the group. Anybody. Who call? Who call? Even pygmies. Huh? Even pygmies. Even pygmies. <laughs> Even pygmies. But, in, but, in, but in Romans 8, 28 through 30, it's, it's in the Bible. When I read that, something comes to mind. Just the predestination question, you know, why pray for people who are already going to know. It's a done deal, so, you know, we pray because he tells us to, but don't sweat it. But there's this verse in 10 here that says, How then will they call on him who they have not believed? How will they? How shall they believe in whom they've not heard, and how shall they hear without a preacher? Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. His question was, why should we pray? Well, okay, but yeah, but we're praying. Oh, I, I kind of assume... Just mix it up a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Get the discussion rolling. Yeah, don't be shy. In 8, he calls us. In 10, we call the individual. Good. Anything else? Anybody want to answer Phil's question about why we should pray if everything is predestined? How so? Okay. That's hard, right? We might know that it's predestined, but we don't know what's predestined, right? That's what I was trying to, I guess I was trying to say with that verse 14, it implies that so we should always be Praying and speaking and seeking to share. That's right. So, we don't know who's why do we still share the gospel? Why do we still preach? Why do we do all those things? It's because, ultimately, because Jesus tells us to go. We don't know. God knows the elect. He, he hasn't told me. Has he told you guys? So, I, don't, I can't make a decision whether George is elect or not, can I? So, I should share the gospel with him. How will I know George is elect? The gospel bears fruit in his life. Man, he takes it, runs, takes off. Man, this is... I love the Lord. God really regenerates his life. His life changes. All these things take place now. But he might fall away and then he was a member of us. (laughs) Man, George, he's got you falling away. (laughs) 
I'm praying for you, George. <laughs> so we pray. So we'll, we'll know they're elect when we see them in heaven. I've got a question for you, Jackie. How come that Jesus himself and the prayer he prays says, you know, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Why? If it's already being done, if, if essentially God's will be done, why waste the breath and why not teach us to pray something? Else? And why, if you look behind which prayer, part that that well, that God's will Lord's isn't going to be done on earth? Prayer, the Lord's prayer, His prayer. If you look at that prayer, you dissect it, you break it down. You almost would think that you could just cut that part out. I'm not going to argue. I did, I think there's so much for for both camps that this is going to inspire <laughs> great conversation, which I'm looking forward to. <laughs> Very much. Yeah. Uh, but if you look at the book of Acts and you think, whoa, what are you going to see doctrine out of the book of Acts? Well, you may see, you may not see, but like you talked about, the 150 things on the table, and we grasp seven. Uh, <coughs> if you look at the book of Acts itself, and you don't have to go to stuff like Romans and, and Hebrews, you can, and you can support a lot of stuff. But when the church was born, and if you look at even the Paul, the apostle, if you look at Acts in like chapter 15, I mean, just start from the beginning and read it. And read what happens to Paul's life when he was born and where it leads. It's almost as though, now I'm going to say this, and I hope, you know, I don't know how it's going to land, but I'm going to just shoot it. Well, anyway. throw it out there, brother. It's, it's almost as though Calvinism, Reformed theology, is some higher form of learning that one hopes to attain at some point in life. Once you get through with Armenianism in your life. Because look at Paul's life himself. What he preaches is uh, uh, when he starts off. When he preaches in, in the synagogues. When he's actually preaching this to found. They lay out what it takes to be saved. When they lay out, lay out all these things. And then years later. He finds himself preaching to the Romans. Years later. Yeah. It's almost as though he's attaining some kind of new form of learning. And then he opens this. Big can of worms up in Romans 8 28 that I, I call, you know, I guess the Calvinism 1 1, because that's, I always look at that as the predestination, you know, verses, um, which there's many others. But man, you look at that stuff and you look at even Paul and where he was at, what he taught and what he ended up teaching, like I said, it's almost as though that's, that stuff is, that stuff is, I don't know, man, it, it takes away like a vacuum, I believe. It can take away like a, like a vacuum. The love of men towards their brother because it's almost like, oh, well, you know, God called him, predestined him, you know, it's good to go. It, it, it's so, I, I believe Reformed theology is devoid of love in a sense. And I've struggled for years to, to, to look at that because essentially the ultimate question at the very onset is this the very end, if you break it all the way down to the very beginning of it all, you could say this God. It's cruel. It's a cruel taskmaster wanting to see a cruel game play out in a big soap opera and a game, grand scheme of things. You said something yesterday that, that's very interesting. You said, God loves us for who we are. Can we love Him for who He is? For me, it's difficult to create the rules in which my son gets killed. It's me, for me, as a father who loves, who loves. It's difficult to create rules in a game 
that my son will play and will get slaughtered as viciously as he got slaughtered. And they call this my plan. At the end of the day, that's what I come back to and see. And, and I can't help but see, man, God, from this page to that page, if I look at it, the heart of God can't be that God. When I come to God being that God, it jacks me up. It pulls the love away from my heart. It just pulls it away. So, because it's like if God has that heart, what heart am I supposed to have? If God's going to kill his son, with what love do I go to share the gospel please to be saved? If, if, you know, it's, it's difficult to wrap your mind around that. And, and yet, and yet, you can't avoid it in here. You can't avoid seeing these things. Oh, blot your name out. And oh, there's so much. And so, it's, it's like I said, I'm interested in the discussion because I think it's going to be an interesting <coughs> And I think everybody, That's my goal. I'm hopeful. Goal, and everyone's getting loaded with ammunition and you know, yeah, and plus everything else is going to come into that. Yeah, and, 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 and I'm really. And, and as we look at our goal, ultimately, is to say, you know, like I said when I began, my heart would like to be in a certain place. I would like it. I would. I. I like things to be uh, different than than I feel like where the scripture's leading me. So it's not like I'm going, hey, I want to become different. Right. I don't want to become different. I just want to be I just want to be faithful to what the Word of God teaches, what the Word lays out. So I want to be careful that, that that's how I'm coming. I want and the, the, the purpose behind what I said last night is the idea that are are we okay with who God says he is? Or is it the God we've made in our minds about how God ought to be? And and have we done that, or are we being faithful to what God, how God reveals Himself? And those are our challenges we got to come to. And so the the way that we find ourselves on solid footing or solid ground is that truth that we hold to, that that we develop, that we cling to, is not supported by my feelings, but is supported by Word of God. What's the Word of God teach me? Because my, my argument would be God teaches in 1 John 4, 7, 8 that God is by definition love. And 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that that, that love is perfectly expressed in the person of Jesus Christ. So then I come to my issue with when I look at it uh, in a different light, what what changed? What what made it different? You had a question, Phil? Yeah, two weeks ago, I wrote down a question and never asked because we just... Fling it, brother. It, but it ties in with this because whenever you get into this stuff, and I like an argument as much as anybody, but practically, you know, you talked about the Westminster Catechism and, mm-hmm. and our chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And, you know, Philippians, I want to know, you know, so how how can we learn practically to enjoy His presence amidst getting into Calvinism and Arminianism and the who's elected and who's not? And if we're not enjoying, if we just end up with a, an adrenaline rush, yeah. We, and we don't want it to. And George is <coughs> is right. One of my first teachers told me one of the things we have to guard against, and I think one of the issues in the in the Calvinistic camp, if there is one, is the idea that uh, everything becomes a textbook and starts to lose 
joy starts to lose um, you know I always said it's like uh, when you used to go to Disneyland I don't know how many of you guys have been to Disneyland when you were a kid and it was so magical and then now you go behind the scenes and there's trash there and there's junk and there's broken things and there's things that but when you was a kid it was all magic it was all magic and I and, it, and the, so the challenge is to to learn about God and to allow God to be God and still find joy in who he is if I have joy in an image that I've created that's not true I don't really have joy in God in the first place I really like what you said because I think we have, as we come at these things and we come at them with humility, we do well because what happens so many times when we debate the scriptures is our debate becomes motivation, motivated by our pride because we want to believe that we're more intelligent, that we've got an insight maybe. And I've seen this a lot in eschatology. I see what start even when I read Rapture, read her Rapture, when I was studying it for a retreat I did, I was frustrated by the amount of hostility I sensed in the people debating, and that felt like, why? If you're humbly coming and you just want to hear the truth, there should no, there shouldn't be any hostility. I feel like we have to guard against that path in our hearts because it becomes an issue of I want to be right more than it is about I just want the truth. And so I think if we all come at it and yeah. appreciate that we have the forum to come at it and just. We just want to know the truth, and that's what we want to hear. Yeah. And hopefully what that's our, say? and hopefully that's our goal, because you know, and, and you alluded to Philippians, I think, where you said we want to know you, but I want to know you. I want to know who you are truly. I want to know the power of your resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of your suffering, which are crazy things for us to be saying, right? If, especially when you consider his suffering. And uh, but but the ideal is that. <laughs> That I think the real joy, I think a lot of people say, man, I don't know if I really am experiencing the joy of the Lord. And my question would be, do, do you, are, is your view of God accurate? Is, are, is your view of God, not are you saved, but is your view of God accurate to what God says about himself? Or what, who God says he is, how God says... Um, he functions, how he sees things, because that's where he's he's telling us in Scripture, right? That the the joy of the Lord is my my strength is found in who God is and and knowing Him and understanding Him. And so when uh, you know when when the disciples come to Jesus and they say, uh, you know, Lord, teach us to pray. How should we pray? Then He says, pray like this. Uh, our Father who art, I almost lost it. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Holy be your name. May your name be separated and above all other things. Holy be your name. And then he says, uh, Thy will be done and thy kingdom come. Or thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the idea of <clears throat> that where we are, in, in my estimation of what he's teaching, that we are saying, God, I want. I want your will, I want to see your will in the things I look around in, on earth. But I don't. When I look around on earth, I see that guy's will just happen. I see that person's will just happen. I, that's how I'm interpreting my surroundings. But God is saying that we should pray 
that thy will be done on earth like it is in heaven. How's God's will done in heaven? Perfectly or not? And so is that how God's will is done on on earth? And and then recognizing is it how I see things that are that is different, or is it what God says, how God says things are? Where is the where is the separation in my in my ideal? And so I really I really don't want us to get caught up in in camps because I know they're there and I know becomes pretty charged up in between Arminianism and Calvinism. And if we're honest, really our primary problem with Calvinism is the, re- the doctrine of reprobation. It's most of the rest of it we're we're probably okay with. Dealing with the doctrine of reprobation is a difficult concept to look at. But so the doctrine of reprobation is the flip side of election. God chose some to be saved. He chose some to be lost. Right. Um, <coughs> so, uh, so, and 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 so. But I, what I want us to do is not decide the truth or the lie of that based on my emotion. I want to decide the truth or the lie in that based on what does God reveal in His Word. What is He saying in His Word? And then I, my point, I guess, is then the love doesn't have to be sucked from me if I have the reality of God. And it does, I'm not saying run down and you got to say, you got to see all these things. I'm just challenging us as a group to say, you know, take your glasses off, come to the Word, and develop what the Word of God, discover the God of the Word and what He is telling us about salvation and then let's discuss it because really it's in the discussion right that that we work through issues because otherwise if I don't ever discuss it my argument sounds great I go oh man I got this all figured out so that's not how I do it I sit down with Jason and I say something and Jason goes and then he says well what about this and then I go yeah, what about that? How do I deal with that issue, right? I mean, so so part of dealing with our comprehension about what God teaches us uh, in His Word is is dealing with that. Not not being afraid to have the discussion. It's okay. Sometimes Jason just plays devil's advocate for me. Sometimes I play devil's advocate for him. Just because I want to say, yeah, do I have this nailed down? Have I thought about all the the aspects and I don't have to be afraid one thing for certain I don't have to be afraid of God of of what God teaches me in his word I can come to God's word God wants me to know him right God wants me to be able to to comprehend him but he also uh, is not just going to shoot it in my ear or spoon feed it in my mouth right he wants me to start doing a little digging he wants me there's something about someone who pursues you, isn't there? There's something about somebody when someone pursues you that there's that you go, wow, they're they're into me. Jace? I was gonna say too, a lot of times when we ever we get into these types of discussions, a lot of times what we I think we do is we grab onto the problem or the thing in front of us and we start forgetting all the other attributes of God. And that's what I like about going through this and all is that we get a good round view and, and none of those things, just because one thing is lending me to this kind of way of thinking, I can't just throw away these other attributes. And one, 
one of the things for me that I always do is I always I try to always go back to, you know, what is this whole book about? Redemption. It's about the redemption of man. And and for what purpose would God what relationship does he desire to have with me? Does he want me to be a robot? I would say no. He gave in the garden. He gave choices. <coughs> you know, and, and so, uh, would you say he preset those choices? Maybe so. But my point is, is that his, his, concept, uh, his concept in the beginning was a relationship with me, a love relationship. And if his, uh, his concept for me is a love relationship, he doesn't want that love to be squeezed out of me. He wants me to have the love relation with him freely. And in, in where I have struggled with Calvinism is that Calvinism takes away my free love uh, towards God. Now, granted, I understand that it's God's grace that He has given me the ability to see this and the ability to do this. And I do believe the Lord has predestined me, knowing um, the things that I would do and the things that I would say. Um, that doesn't change the concept for me of what God's real goal was. God's goal was a relationship with me of mutual love. Me, for the good things that he's given me and done for me in my life. And so for me, you know, I, I'll just claim my side now. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I definitely lean heavy into the Calvinist side of I understand, I believe God is in control. Nothing happens outside of his control. I can't, my will doesn't dictate God's plan. Um, but I do think that God is, his plan is ultimately to get the elect, those people who want to have a love relationship with him. And for me, it just goes back to the beginning. So, you know, I think sometimes we get caught up, we, we're so focused on this predestination, election, we get kind of zoned in on these words, but I don't think God, God didn't make us as robots from the beginning. Sure. Why did it become you have to like choose these two men's views? Somebody's, so, somebody's wrong. Before the 1400s or 1500s when they wrote these views. Yeah, what, they, that's what, not how it happened though. The, the <laughs> primary view up until the 1500s was Calvinism. Arminius. Uh, responded to church council, whichever was the church council before Dort, which I want to say is Burgess or something like that. He responded and said, well, this is how I think it looks. And then you have the council of Dort. Council of what? Dort. Okay. Which is the church's response to our Arminianism. And so what occurs if the Council of Dort is what we know as Tulip. Tulip comes out at that point as a response to the five um, uh, points of, of Arminius. So the five, it starts with five points of Arminius. Then in answer to those five points, you have the five points, which wasn't Calvin. Calvin didn't do it. Uh, I don't remember the guy's name, but... But Calvin does become a supporter of it, and so his name ends up landing on on uh, uh, Calvinism, and Arminius holds the, the Ar Arminian view. And there are, just so we know, when we look at the two spectrums, if you put Calvinism on one side and Arminianism on the other side, there are probably three steps in between. So you have 
like staunch Calvinism, then lesser, then then somewhere in the middle, then more Armenian than absolute Armenian. One is called yeah. One is called Wesleyan is probably the farthest white right. Wesleyan Armenianism is the farthest right, and uh, whatever you want to call it, extreme Calvinism is being the farthest to the left. And these are ultimately theologians wrestling with the questions. They're looking at the text, same text that we look at, and they're saying, if this is true, what does that mean? How does this play out? Is this is that idea that I see? Theology is the the logical conclusion based on the word. What's the logical conclusion of this concept based on the word? And is that idea supported in the word? So theology takes us to the wherever that understanding is. And our, our, our worry sometimes is that we, we don't want to fully understand what is involved in the theological view. We just want to say, well, let's just keep the main thing the main thing. True. We want to stay focused on Christ. Absolutely. My, when I share with an unbeliever, I'm not talking about Calvinism or Arminianism. I'm talking about Jesus. I mean, you need... To repent. Jesus commanded all men everywhere to repent and believe. Uh, receive the gospel. Let your life be changed. That's all that we're talking about. But as we, as we, uh, in order to have a complete understanding of what is what is it that God's word is teaching, it leads us into those discussions. And those. So prior to 1500s. The view we know as Calvinism was the traditional view of the church. Then Arminius argues with the traditional view of the church, and Arminianism comes in. Um, and you have the divide uh, that starts roughly, whatever, 1600, 1700s. Don't hold me fast to the dates. I'm not a great member of the dates. Um, Calvinism still is the primary view through time, really, until relatively recent time not super recent like 18 late 1700s 1800s it gains a foothold and and starts to uh, really take hold within the church so it's just a calvinism and armenianism is just a way of organizing the thoughts that the bible teaches in a logical way and saying is this what it says now the struggle for you and i is they are different right they, they, they maybe have the same same starting point. Maybe they don't. You might argue that point, but but they they look at the world very differently. Are they both saved? Yeah. Does your theology have to be right for salvation? Is that what the Bible teaches? Not according to the Calvinists. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, most of them. Uh, I don't know. Maybe there are some, but but um, for the most part. You know, I was just listening to a class at Westminster Theological Seminary where where that same question was asked by one of the students, aren't Armenians all heretics, basically? And and he said, No, you don't you're not saved by your theology. He said, I, I don't think their theology is correct. I don't think they're taking a logical course, but but according to, if I'm consistent with if you're consistent with that view, if you're elect, you're elect. Your theology didn't change whether you're elect or you're not elect. 
salvation? No, Calvinism is eternal security. Armenianism, you can lose your salvation. Uh, depending on how far down you go, Armenianism will say that you can lose your salvation when you sin. But not all Armenians. But not every, every... People land in between those. My point is, here's the spectrum, okay guys? Here's a spectrum of salvation. Now, all of it can't be right. Now, what I'm, the challenge is, don't use your tradition. Try to take your tradition off and just go to the Word. And let's say, what does what is what is the Word teach us? When we look at Romans one through eight, what's Romans one through eight telling me? How's that? How's that work? Now, I want to also plug in other places. I want to go to Ephesians chapter two. I want to go to the Gospels where we see Jesus bringing the message of salvation. How does Jesus present it? How does He lay that out? Does that fit with what Paul's talking about? And so we begin to look at all those uh, at all of it and not to be afraid of where that journey is going to lead me but to rejoice in the fact that what that journey is going to do is help me get a clearer picture who he talks about it no I had to do my my journey I think the reality is both presented you have the. You, I mean, if we you have absolutely have the concepts. What people want to do is divide it and say, um, Calvinism's sovereignty of God and Arminianism is a responsibility of man, and both of those things are clearly taught in the Bible. Is it? Is, does the Bible teach that man makes a choice? Absolutely. Nobody's denying that. Absolutely taught. Man makes a choice. Um. And in what relation and how that works. I mean, those are things we we ought to know. When I was young, okay. When I was young, when I was young, I just wanted somebody to tell me. Just tell me what it is. Just tell me what it is, and that's good enough for me. And that's not good enough for me anymore. I want to know, I really want to know God. I want to know who He is. Just like I really want to know my wife. I don't want to know the woman I think she is. I don't want to know the woman I think she ought to be. I want to know who she is in reality. And I want to know God like that. I want to know God in reality. Who are you, God? What, what is your heart? I agree absolutely. No question. Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema. Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one God. What's the very next thing he says? And you shall... Love the Lord your God with all your being. You shall love Him. And you shall teach these things to your children. And when you walk and when you go and when you move. And so I want, I want to be able to do all that. So then he throws in verse 828. And we know all things work together for good to those who love God. Maybe. Yeah, and we want to when we come into interpreting that word, right, and working our way through the word, we want to be faithful to it and honest with it, and and not try to put. I don't want to put my feeling into it. I want to say, what is God's word saying to me? What is He 
imparting? What is Paul trying? What's the point he's getting across? What's what's going on? And there's no shortcut to that. Just for most people, um, just to use your Bible as a tool, um, most of us in our side notes have uh, scriptures that link, you know, that back up what that chapter says. I just, just if you're going to go study, study tool-wise, right? So you have contextual scriptures on the side of your verse, uh, in every Bible, See all these little verses right here? So if you want to look up what relates to that, those are your tools. But just for your FYI, like I'm on Bible Hub right now. So it's doing that for me right here with some cross-references. It's giving me every translation. If I go to Blue Letter Bible. Oops, I lost it. Oh, that's a friend. Well, <laughs> Blue Letter Bible has all this little thing where it has little tools. You can put you can put in I have Romans I ah I hear this. So there's Romans one through eight. Every little verse has tools. It's got all these strongs concord. <coughs> you know, so I don't know if you guys like if you're gonna study if you have some of these tools, if you have a computer, there's so many options for study. And I don't know if you're familiar with them at all, but I just kinda wanted to point yeah, out. Yeah, they're all too. free and mm-hmm. and ultimately, you know, the, the big challenge one of the guys I really respect at Calvary Chapel Buell is Brian Switzer. Not because Brian Switzer is perfect, not because he doesn't have any bad views, but because Brian Switzer is a man of the word. Brian Switzer might not be able to quote for you what Calvin thinks or what Armenia, Arminius thinks, but he can quote for you what the word says. How is it that he can do that? He reads it. How often does he read it? All the time. Find him without his Bible. He, he is committed to spending the time in the Word. Why? Because he wants to know God. And so, it, so then he has an answer. He has an idea. And, and uh, him and I get together most Thursdays. And tomorrow too. So some Fridays, most Thursdays, we get together and we just chew on the same stuff. Not because we want to argue or fight, but be, but because we want to really understand who God is and what's God's word say. Challenge me, challenge me, and say that's not right. And then I go, oh my gosh, I hadn't thought of that. You know what? You're right. I need to I need to spend some more time. I want to know God more. Learning to love God, love God's word, loving where the word of God takes you. It should be the, the the great challenge of our life that I want it and I'd love to give you well it's a lie I wouldn't love I wouldn't give you a shortcut if there was one because I think there's something to be said for the journey for the journey that says I want to understand why am I praying how does that work with predestination well I don't, I don't necessarily want to know what every other man thinks I want to know What's it saying in God's Word? What's He tell us about prayer? What's He teach us about the idea? What's He tell us about predestination? What doesn't He tell us? And, and, and how does that stuff relate? And there's just no other way for it, right? It's all found in the Word. Spending time in the Word. And you can read the whole thing from cover to cover in a week. Even if you're Jason. We'll find that experiment this week. That'll be your assignment instead of the fence. So, 
But it, you know, it's all in a matter of do I do I want to know? Do I want to understand? So so Brian Switzer has committed to read the Word of God all the way through every single year since he's been a believer. <clears throat> I think he's been walking with the Lord for eight years. So cover to cover, eight times through the year, and then he sets aside a week a year. I don't know if he still does it, but he used to set aside a week a year to go to a cabin, fast, and read the Bible, finish the Bible in that week. To just get away, because for what purpose? I want to know God. I want to know God. And there's a lot of growth that happens in that, right? And understanding, is there questions that happen when you do that? Yeah. I was going to point out, he's Armenian. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. For all his reading, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And there's that's okay. But the the point is that we are making the Word of God part of us, and that that's where our theology needs to come from. But what I don't want it to do is come from whose argument I like the best, or or who you know had the longest history, or. How did this all come about? I want it to come out of the Word. Naturally, come out of the Word and what the Word teaches. And, you know, if I'm honest, I think the reality is you're going to have some kind of a blend. Um, I'm, I'm just trying to work my way through it. And I'm not afraid to be honest about it. Say, you know, here's where I'm at. This is how I'm working my... But at the end of the day, I'm going to be faithful to what the Word says. What's the Word teach me and just keep pouring it in and then that's how I that's what I do I, I get questions like how does this work I don't understand how this works you know pull my hair but I'm not going to hide I don't want to hide from it I want to let's go find out I want to look up everywhere every prayer in the Bible how they pray it I want to know um, not only every prayer they prayed in the Bible but but uh, is there anywhere the Bible talks about answered prayer and what came as a result of that answered prayer and how that looked and and then just pour it in, pour it in, pour it in, and and then develop from that. Does that make sense? Develop my response from what I'm finding in the whole counsel of God because that's what Paul declares that I really want to hold fast to. Right in the Book of Acts, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I didn't hide something from you or not want to talk about something because I'm not comfortable with it. I declared it all. And, and you know, this is, this is what that looks like. Now, 2,000 years later, I'm trying to understand what that means. But I want to be, as much as I can, I want to be honest with what the Scripture says. Sound like a good challenge or no? So... So we went a long time and didn't talk about anything tonight. But hopefully that challenges you guys for next week. Because next week we are. So next week we will talk about uh, the, the discussion on all three fronts. One front we didn't discuss at all. It's a little lesser. But, you know, the, the idea of Reformed theology, of Arminianism, and Universalism. And what, what is it that the Bible teaches and, and what do we see? Because I'm a, you go online. My whole, this whole journey for me started, a friend of mine, uh, 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 Don MacArthur, got into a, an argument with a guy on Facebook. And I was like, 
you know, I'm friends, so it pops up, you know, uh, you guys know how Facebook works, you know, so you don't have to do it, but it pops up and says, hey, you know, Don linked you to this discussion, so I go read the discussion, and I'm like, oh, what is this guy saying? You gotta be kidding me, and wow, he defended it pretty well, challenged me, uh, and so I had to think about how, what does the Bible actually say about this? Because I know what you're saying ain't right. That can't be right. So i got to go to the Word. What does the Word say? What does the Word teach? That person was a guy who used to do worship at evangelistic outreaches who is today a pastor of a universalist church which teaches that all men are saved regardless as to what they do or, or what they believe. And you are thinking to yourself, could never prove that. What is he talking about? Well, we'll get into it next week. But your part is define salvation, what you see the scripture teach the salvation. Sound good? Everybody okay with it? Yeah? <coughs> let's see where we land. And then let's come prepared to discuss it. That's a good word. I like to discuss. <laughs>